You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. You have God's Word. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I had no idea they were going to uh, sing that last song this morning. Um, I was messaging with uh, a good friend of mine <clears throat> this morning. I, I found out that the only guy that I've ever known as a, as a brother, I have a sister, um, but I never had the opportunity to have a brother, but this guy is as close to a brother to me as anybody I've ever had, and he's six months older than me. We grew up together, every grade in school together, all the way through high school, lived across the street from me. Uh, we would play together in, in our yard and his parents' yard, and he always wanted to be Hulk, and I always wanted to be Spider-Man. And I was messaging with his wife this morning because I found out that he has COVID, and he's in ICU, and uh, he's in the process of going home this morning, his heavenly home. And um, I got that word right before first service this morning, so I'm... Uh, wrestling with that a little bit, so your prayers will be much appreciated. His name's Junior, his wife's name's Karen, and uh, he may have already gone home to be with the Lord or is in the process, so uh, let's just pause and pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace is sufficient, and you are faithful to all generations. Every promise you've made, you will keep. And Father, it seems like we've sung about your promises all morning already. And Father, we thank you that you've gone to prepare a place for us. But Father, what I find most comforting is not so much the place as it is the person. Then in that same text, you said, Lord, you said that where you are, we may be also. And Lord, that's more important to me than And golden streets and pearly gates and everything else we read about heaven, that I can be where you are. And Father, I know I'm not the only one this morning that's wrestling with the loss um, of a family member or, or someone who's sick and maybe even in the last days of their life as well. And So Father, I know I'm not alone in that. And I know that this past week, Father, for many families was a, was a tough week, not that they weren't thankful, but that they were hurting because of someone that's not around the table. But Father, we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. And we know that there's much more to life than just this life. We know, Father, that the pathway has been cleared. We know that the veil has been torn. We know that that faith in you is more about just faith in this life, but also that faith carries us into the next. So, Father, in that we rejoice, and in that we are deeply grateful and thankful for your goodness and mercy that found us right where we were in the middle of our sins, in the middle of our spiritual death, in the middle of, of our rebellion. Your grace and your mercy found us. And, Father, you have promised us that surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. And then, Father, one day we will sit down with you in the midst of our enemies at a table that is set, and the great shepherd will be there, and all those who've gone before us will be there. That's a promise you've made, and that's a promise you will keep. So, Father, we ask for your guidance this morning. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your love. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your healing. We ask for your power and your presence we ask, Father, for your guidance in your word this morning, for you have something to say to us. And, Father, we want you to know that we're listening. So, Father, I pray that you would guide us this morning and help me to say what needs to be said, nothing more, nothing less. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. It's interesting to me that, that trends tend, tend to repeat themselves. I can remember when I was, well, I was probably a teenager, maybe early 20s, I can remember when I bought my first pair of blue jeans that were brand new but had holes in them. I took them home to my mom, and my mom saw those pants for the first time, and she said, you got to be kidding me. You paid good money 
For a brand new pair of pants that already has holes in the knees. Well, for those of you who are much younger, you think that this is a new trend. It's actually not. These trends kind of repeat themselves, but it's interesting how we buy things that are new that are made to look old. Uh, my wife and I just bought a new dining room table. And uh, when, when we were looking at those and we actually had this thing made, uh, they asked if we wanted to have a distressed look, and my wife was like all over that. So we, we bought a new table that was made to look old. So, and they went to great detail on this thing. There's like, there's nail prints in, in the legs. There's like, where somebody taking nails and screws and kind of beat them into the legs. I'm like, well, I could have made that. I mean, I, if you want me to mess it up, I can do that. Uh, but we bought the table new to look old. It's amazing to me how some of the new cars that you're seeing out on the road now actually have very classic lines. If you go back and look at some of the hot rods from the 60s, you'll see some of the same exact lines in those old vehicles that you see in the new vehicles today. And while we buy things that are brand new that have maturity added to them as a convenience or as something we like as part of a style, in our walk with Christ, there is no fast track or sidestep or, or pill that you can take that'll, that'll make you mature in Christ all at once. It's actually a journey that we're on together, and that journey begins at the moment we put our faith in Jesus. Paul is in a Roman prison as he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. This church at Ephesus is a church that he established. He was there for over two years, and when he left that church, he left that church in great hands. He had elders that had already grown up in faith that he had handed the ministry to, and they were going to continue that ministry in that church. When we read this letter, and Paul writes this letter from a Roman prison, there is two themes that come to the top immediately as you read this letter. You could sit down and read the entire letter to the church at Ephesus. It could take, it'd probably take you 15 or 20 minutes to read this entire letter. But what you're going to see when you read the entire letter is a very distinct division. In the first three chapters, as a matter of fact, in the very opening verses of the first chapter, Paul goes into the deep end of the pool of theology, specifically Christology or the study of Christ. And what he does there in those opening verses, basically verses 3 all the way really to chapter 3, is he takes us on a deep, deep dive into what it means to be transformed from the inside out and what Jesus did to accomplish that. So what he does is he gives us a deep, deep theology. But then in chapter 3, we have this beautiful prayer that Paul prays. And that prayer kind of transitions us into the second half of the book. And in the second half of the book, we see a whole lot of application. We see a whole lot of practical, well, steps that we're to take. And Paul frames the second half of this book with a phrase, our walk, our walk with Christ. As a matter of fact, look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, all throughout the, all throughout the New Testament, we have basically two items. I mentioned one last week, or two parts of speech that emphasizes either an imperative, an imperative is an action, an imperative is a command, and an imperative is say, okay, this is what you need to do. But imperatives are always built upon something called an indicative. An indicative is basically a statement of truth. So in the New Testament, what we have, we see it with Jesus' ministry, we see it in the epistles, we see it all throughout the New Testament. We'll have one part of a text that's talking about who we are in Christ, a, a statement of truth. And then we have Paul writing and said, okay, now, based off of that truth, here's how you live. So in other words, all theology, all doctrine should move us towards practical living. In other words, obedience is always the right response to God's incredible work of salvation. So if we've experienced grace, just as Ed said a little while ago, Following Jesus is more than just punching our ticket and going to heaven. Far too many Christians view Christianity, and, and quite frankly, too many people inside the church view Christianity as that one moment when you put your faith in Jesus. That's actually not the end point, that's the beginning point, where we walk out our faith in obedience growing up in Christ. The first aspect of this letter is all about the doctrine of Christ. And in fact, in chapter one, he says something, Paul says something incredible. He says that we are in Christ. The moment we put our faith in Jesus, we are in Christ. And he even goes so far to say is that we are seated in the heavenly places. Now we all know that we're living in a broken, fallen world. We all know that. You've been dealing with it all week. You know what the broken world's like. 
But Paul says, spiritually speaking, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He goes on to say in chapter 2, if you want to back up there, back up to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, he talks about where we used to be. In other words, if you put your faith in Jesus, it's an easy thing to kind of forget where Christ brought us from. So in chapter 2, he reminds the church at Ephesus, and again, these are those indicatives, those statements of truth, and listen to what he says. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul says to the church at Ephesus and to us, he says, at one point you were lost. At one point, you were dead spiritually. In other words, you were a spiritual corpse. No life whatsoever. And, and Paul says that because we were a spiritual corpse, he says that we were walking a pathway. And that pathway was a pathway of darkness. But not only that, Paul goes so far as to say that we were following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, we had a Lord. It wasn't Jesus, it was Satan. And we were following him. Now get this. There's only two possibility. There's only two camps. There's only two groups of people. In all of the world, there's only two groups of people right now. Those who are following Jesus as Lord and those who are following Satan as Lord. I know that's kind of strong. Am I saying that everyone who's not following Jesus is Satanist? No. But what I am saying is, is that according to what Paul is saying here, that you were walking a course, you had someone you were following, and as a result, you were dead in your sins. But notice what else he says later in chapter 2. Look down at verse 10. Actually, verse 8. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Now he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, or we are his masterpiece. We are created by God in Christ. We were recreated in salvation for Jesus, in Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Look at that last sentence that we may walk in them. So here's what, here's what Paul says. Paul contrasts the path we were walking before we were saved. We were walking a path of darkness. We were following a leader. His name is Satan. We were walking in a path of darkness, spiritually dead. When we came to faith in Christ, we were reborn. We experienced a rebirth. And, and part of that rebirth is that God recast for us a new path to walk. And he says that that path was created for us to live out. And they were to walk on that path. Now pick it back up in chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now Paul is going to focus our attention. If we've been born again, how are we to live as a result of that? It's not enough to say that I've been born again and not ever live out any different life whatsoever. It's not enough to say I've got my ticket to heaven. Paul says in chapter 4 and following, and he says it five times, walk worthy. Walk out your faith. And what Paul is going to focus our attention on in this chapter is that we are called to grow up. We are called as followers of Jesus to grow up in our faith. Paul uses this analogy quite often. He uses it quite a bit with the church at Corinth. And he says to Corinth, he says that the church of Corinth when he, when he heard about what was going on in the church, he realized that they were a bunch of spiritual infants, even though they'd been given every opportunity to grow up in their faith. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, you need to grow up. So let's take a look at what Paul says about growing up. And what we're going to do this morning is, is we're going to do a self-evaluation. If you are a believer in Christ then what you're going to do is you're going to do some self-evaluation this morning to find out where I stand in maturity. Am I growing up or am I still a spiritual infant? What's always been amazing to me within the church and the ministry is that someone can be in church for 20 years. They can be part of a small group. They, they can actually be serving to some degree and yet be as spiritually immature as they can possibly be. And then I've seen the exact opposite. I've seen people come to faith in Christ, 
And within two to three years, grow up in Christ so rapidly that their life, when you look at their life, you can't help but think about Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I want the testimony that says that when I die, when I die, when my last breath is done, and I'm done with this life, and the Lord takes me home, what I hope my testimony is, is that when people thought of me, they thought of Christ. Man, that's better than a million or a billion dollars in the bank. But we've got to grow up. I've got to grow up. And Paul talks about growing up in Christ. So let's take a look at this morning and and let's do some self-evaluation of what it means to grow up and mature in Christ. So let's read on here. He says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love. Now Paul is going to first talk about the unity of the church. And notice how he frames that unity. He says, He says that we are one with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He says that there is one body, one Spirit. He says that there is one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. So so Paul says to the church at Ephesus that we are to be a unified whole. Then Paul goes on to say, and he talks about where Jesus, a ministry that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. Notice this, verse 7. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then Paul gives, gives credibility or proof of that statement, and he quotes Psalm 68, 18. And he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and here's the focus point, and he gave gifts to men. So Paul says that according to Psalm 68, 18, that when Jesus ascended on high, he gave some gifts to the church. And that those gifts are to be used for a specific purpose. Now, he's got a parenthetical statement there that really has nothing to do directly with what we're talking about, but it's in verse 9. And he talks about what Jesus was doing behind the scenes after he died on the cross. We're not going to get into that this morning, but I want you to pick it up in verse 10. Actually, verse 11, I'm sorry. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So the gifts that, that Christ gave to the church are listed right there in verse 11. And he says, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers. There's actually four roles or four gifts that God gave to the church. That last two, instead of it being two, it's actually considered one. Servant teachers or shepherd teachers. So Jesus Christ specifically gave these roles or or, or servant leadership positions within the local church for a particular purpose. And that leads us to our first question. So in evaluation, I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I a spectator or am I a participant? Are you a spectator or are you a participant? Because listen as to why Christ gave these gifts to the church. Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So Jesus distributed these gifts. And these gifts are meant to be used within the church to equip the body to do the work of the ministry. Now I can tell you without any hesitation, when I was growing up, the church I grew up in, for many years of my early walk with Christ, when I came to faith in Christ when I was 16, And for most of the early years of my walk with Christ, I had the idea in my head that evangelism, discipleship, missions was all the responsibility of the pastor that I grew up with because he was the one that was primarily doing it. Outside of my parents, the one who was sharing the gospel, the one who was praying, the one who was doing all of the work within the church was the guy who was my pastor. So I thought that what I was supposed to do, my only responsibility in the church was to show up And when I was young, that was every Sunday. But when I got a little older, when I got into college, I began to kind of step back because I thought, okay, I can get what I need one Sunday a month. And I began to spend more and more time with my friends on Sundays than I did in church because I thought, well, if if all I'm supposed to do is go listen and hear, then, then I can get enough in one service, especially when those services go long and the services that I grew up in often did, then one Sunday's enough. So I had the mentality of a spectator, not a participant. But notice that Paul includes in the grand scheme of events in Jesus' 
earthly ministry culminating in his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension, that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul realizes that in that ascension, in that moment of history, when Jesus is doing the miraculous thing and, and culminating all of his ministry, Paul says is that that moment he gave the church four gifts. And those gifts are to be used specifically for helping you to grow up. He says that they were given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and notice this, for the building up of the body of Christ. The greatest growth plan in the Bible, the greatest growth ministry in the Bible is not some kind of door-to-door campaign where we knock on doors. The greatest growth opportunity in the church to reach the community and to be a family of disciples who are on mission together simply is, is those who are leading the church and serving the church are equipping you to do the work of the ministry. It is not my job to be the evangelist, the teacher, the disciple maker, the administrator, the Sunday school teacher, the children's ministry director, the youth director. We hire staff and those staff have as their role to equip you to do the work of the ministry. There are things that only you can do in this ministry. There are things that God has gifted you to do and I can't do them. Because if I do, I'm gonna make a huge mess. I've got different giftings than you. But the church is only effective when every single person is involved in the work of the ministry. Does that mean doing everything on campus? Not necessarily. It could simply be that you're leading your family well, that you're discipling your kids. Did you know that you are the primary discipler of your kids? The church comes alongside you to help you with that. But you parents are the primary discipler of those kids. You are the one that they learn what faith is all about. You are the one that they learn how important it is. You are the one where they learn about the gospel and about grace and mercy and love. Yes, we love to have them here. Yes, we'll pour into them everything we've got. But quite frankly, parents, we've only got a couple hours with them a week at best. Are you a spectator or are you a participant? In 1968, the Olympics were in Mexico. And the, the Olympic sport of the marathon running, where, where all these countries were competing against each other in this 26-mile marathon, the marathon ended inside the stadium, and the stadium was filled with people, and, and the winner of the, of the marathon crosses the line, but it's, it's over an hour before the rest of the participants are able to come in, run around the stadium, and cross the finish line. The last guy comes into the stadium, and they're cheering him on, and he barely makes it across the finish line, and everybody celebrates. It's over. Everybody's done. They start turning the lights off. People start leaving the stadium. And as people are leaving the stadium, they notice there's some police cars coming into the parking lot. There was one guy left that everybody forgot about. And the guy was from South Africa. And everybody had forgotten about him. And it had been hours since the front guy came across the finish line. The stadium was almost empty. And they open the gates, and the guy comes running in. And he runs around the track, and they notice that he's injured. He's bleeding from his leg. Apparently, he had had a pretty bad fall out on the run, and he was barely limping to get to the finish line, but he finishes the race. And there was only a few people in the stands that were able to applaud him. He crosses the line, and he collapses. And you can imagine what the first question was he was asked. They were asking him, why didn't you quit? I mean, there's no fanfare. There's no one here applauding you. You were obviously injured. Why didn't you just give up and quit? His name was John Akari. And this is what he said, quote, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to participate in a race. My country sent me 7,000 miles to finish the race. Jesus did not leave the portals of glory to come to earth, to live a perfect life, to, to, to be crucified on a cross, to bleed out in front of people who are mocking him, to be placed in a tomb, to be resurrected three days later, to ascend back to the Father, to start the church, to, to give the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, and, and then the church began, and martyr after martyr after martyr are burned at the stake, cut into pieces, drawn and quartered by horses, all so we could sit around in a nice comfy building and say, wow, what a great job he's doing. This is not a spectator sport. The blood of Jesus and the blood of the martyrs testify strongly that there's more to follow in Jesus than just a ticket to heaven. There's more to follow in Jesus than simply being a spectator. 
So am I a spectator or am I a participant? Notice the next verse, 13. Verse 13, he says this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now I want you to notice something. Verse 11 all the way to verse 16 is one sentence. Now in your English translation, you may have at least one period in there, but in the Greek it's one complete sentence. And Paul packs in as much as he possibly can into this one long sentence about what it means to grow up in Christ. So now we have the next question in verse 13. He says here, until we all attain the unity of faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here's the next question I've got for you. The first one, am I a spectator or a participant? The next one, do I compare my faith to my peers? Now, why is that question important? Paul says that there were gifts given to the church. Those gifts are there to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. As a result of the saints doing the work of the ministry, there is a unity of the faith. We're in this together. We are called to great commission work. We are in this together, and we are to be on mission together. And Paul says right here that we are to attain a unity of faith, that we are to go deeper in our knowledge of the Son of God. Here it is, to mature manhood or womanhood. What does that look like? What does it look like to mature? What does it look like to become a mature follower of Christ? Now remember, we never actually obtain that in this life. We keep growing and growing and growing, but we never reach that full stature of manhood in Christ or womanhood in Christ. But what does it look like? I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like the person sitting next to you. Let me tell you why that's important. Paul says that the model of maturity that we are shooting for is the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, so here is our model. Our model is Jesus, how he loved, how he served, how he gave, how he, how he was on mission, how he spoke, how he lived. So our goal as followers of Jesus is to become little Christ. Did you know that's what Christian means, to be a little Christ? So we're to grow up into Christ. But most often what we do to gauge our own spiritual maturity is we look at our neighbor and we say, well, I'm more mature than them. Now, you don't say that out loud because, well, you wouldn't do that. But here's what we do. We look at the marriage that's failing and we look at the man or the woman who committed adultery because we've heard the gossip and we go, well, you know, I've never done that, so I'm more mature than they are. And we kind of grin and we kind of smile to ourselves about how close we are to Jesus because we've never done that thing. Or, or we smile to ourselves and we, and we look at our own maturity compared to someone else and we say, okay, I've never stuck a needle in my arm or I've, I've never had a problem with alcohol or I've never had a problem with anger or I've never had a problem with prostitution or I've never had a problem with, with over-sexuality, so therefore I must be mature. So what we do is we look at each other and we go, I must be more mature than that person. But the problem with that is, is that is an indicative or an absolute example of what spiritual immaturity looks like. Because it's only by the grace of God that your marriage is not in the tank right now. It's only by the grace of God that you're not addicted to meth right now. It's only by the grace of God that you're not looking forward to downing a filth of alcohol when you get out of here. It's only by the grace of God that your kids are at home. It's only by the grace of God that DSS hasn't taken them out. It's only by the grace of God that you've got a job and you've got money in the bank. So it is an absolute sign of spiritual immaturity when we look at everyone else around them, we push them down so we can feel better about ourselves. Paul says, don't look at anybody else. The model is Jesus. How are you doing when you make that comparison? Well, I'll tell you how I'm doing. I'm making a mess of things. I don't always think like Jesus thinks, and I don't always speak like he speaks, and I don't always love like he loves, and I don't always serve like he serves. But my goal each day when I get up, and the prayer that I pray daily, is Lord, today let me live like you, let me talk like you, let me think like you, let me speak like you, and let me love like you. Do I get that right every day? Nope, but that's my target. That's what I'm shooting for. I can't look at what everybody else is doing and compare myself to them to make myself feel better. Do you know there's been a lot of people pushed out of the church for that very reason? It's because they were gossiped about? 
because someone else needed to feel superior, superior to someone else, so they pushed that person down and gossiped about them. You know why we, you know why we run towards gossips, especially in the church? You know why that's such, such an appealing thing to people? So that you can feel better about yourself. So that you feel like you're having it all together and you're taking advantage of someone else's foolishness or mistakes or the path that they're walking. So do I compare my faith to my peers? Well, if you are, then that's a sign of spiritual immaturity. If you are a spectator rather than a participant, over the long haul, that's going to lead you down a path of spiritual immaturity. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So Paul says to the church at Ephesus, he says, okay, Jesus has given some gifts to the church. Those gifts have been given to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And as we do the work of the ministry together, there's a unity of faith that we find. There's a unity in mission. There's a unity where we, we are together in this mission that God has given us. And out of that, we are to, to see Jesus as the model for our life. And collectively and individually, we are to mold our lives around Jesus. And by the way, there is no other life better to mold your life around than Jesus Christ. You can have all the Instagram influencers you want. I'll take Jesus any day of the week. Mold your life around him. As we do that corporately and individually, then we are going to grow up in Christ. And one of the results of growing up in Christ is we're not going to be tossed around like little children anymore. Let me give you the illustration that Paul gives. It's the idea of some kids in a boat out in the middle of a, a lake or the ocean. And they don't have the strength to row. They don't even know how to row. They don't know anything. They're just in a boat. And wherever the wind blows, where the waves take them is wherever the boat goes. So Paul says to the Ephesian church, he says to them, he says, don't be like a bunch of kids in a boat where every doctrine that comes down the pipe, simply you take it at face value and believe it though it's true. I have learned a lot of things since all this COVID mess began. Now what I'm about to say to you, I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, okay? I'm, I'm not going to talk about anyone individually in this church. So what I'm talking about right now at this moment is, is the church, Western church, American church in particular, our community specifically. But here's what I have found out. And I've learned this, and I've seen it play out over and over again, especially under the microscope of COVID-19. Folks, we are living in a time of absolute biblical illiteracy. And I don't say that I don't say that with pride. I don't say that with arrogance because I can tell you right now there's a whole lot about this book I don't know and don't understand. And I'm still on this journey with you, but I'm here to tell you I've gotten questions over the last two, three, four years that has blown my mind, but especially in the last 18 to 24 months of folks who've been in church their entire lives, they're hearing something being said by some talking head on the news or some talking head politician and they take it as the gospel truth, and then they want to argue with me about what the Bible clearly says. And I'm astounded at the absolute willingness to lay down what we know to be true because some guy with a DR in front of his name or some guy with a bunch of money or some guy with a BMW or some guy with a mansion in Beverly Hills said that it's true. Okay, well, it must be true. You know what you are? Spiritually immature. Paul says you're like a boat. You're like a kid in a boat. And wherever the wind goes is wherever you go. And it's a sign of immaturity. Here's the question. Am I easily misled by false teachers and false doctrine? We have instant information at our, at our palm of our hands now. We can Google anything we want to Google. But what I have found is, is that because we have so much information, the truth is lost in all of the lies. And we are so quickly accepting a lie for the truth that we don't even ask questions about it anymore. We, we, don't, we don't even weigh it against what we know is reality. We just accept it. My, my sister, we had Thanksgiving dinner just like most of you did, and my sister comes to the dinner, she's got this package, and she's giving me a package. I'm like, wow, Christmas early, cool. And she goes, no, I was cleaning out some stuff in my, at her house, and she said, I found all these old comic books that you used to have. And you know the first thing I thought? Wow, I wonder if they're worth any money. <laughs> you know, that, that million-dollar find, right? Well, she'd already checked that for me. They're all worthless. 
Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting these old uh, comic books out, and I'm looking at them, and um, man, I've got some of my own markings in there. It's like really cool. But they're, they're, in those old comic books, I don't know anything about new comics. I haven't looked at any, but in the old comic books, now those of you who are north of 40, uh, you're going you're gonna to kind of connect with me here. The rest of you are going to like, what is he talking about? So before Amazon, there was this thing called mail order. And <laughs> in the comic books, they had this section. It was usually at the back, but sometimes it was in the middle. It was almost like, a, like an advertisement section in the comic book. And you get over there, and it was always this, this list of stuff you could, you could mail order. And, and it was like sea monkeys, right? You've got to have me some sea monkeys. You send off $4.95, and they send you these sea monkeys. I never got those, but here's the thing that caught my eye. And I remember laying my hard-earned money down to buy this, X-ray glasses. <laughs> now, I can tell you right now, at probably preteen puberty age, I probably had some, well, devious ideas for those X-ray glasses. <laughs> but this magazine, this comic book, had an ad there, and this ad said that if I spent $4.95 on these glasses, that I would be able to see through walls. They even had a picture of it there where a kid is, is looking through a wall. I'm thinking, well, I got to have that. I mean, who wouldn't want that? So I send off the $4.95 of hard-earned money, which $4.95 back in that day was quite a bit of money, especially for a 10, 11-year-old. And they come in the mail six weeks later. Yes, six weeks later. And I open it up, and I can't wait. I absolutely can't wait. I can't wait to go to school with my x-ray glasses. Put those bad boys on, and here's all it was. It had like this spiral thing, like shadow and black like spirals, that's all it was. I looked at every wall in the house, and guess what? You're going to be shocked by this. They didn't work <laughs> at all. So I just blew five bucks. Now, we all laugh at that. We think, well, yeah, obviously, x-ray glasses to a kid for $4.95. But listen, folks, there are people who've been in church for years and years and years, set under the preaching of doctrine right out of the Bible, who are believing stuff that are even more foolish than x-ray glasses. And not even questioning it. And laying down good money because they've bought into some bunch of lies that some talking head has told them and without even thinking twice about it. Swallow it hook, line, and sinker. If that describes you this morning, I'm not here to put you down. I'm not here to hit you over the head, but I am here to tell you that is a sign of spiritual immaturity. And Christ didn't save you to believe every lie coming down the pipe. He saved you and set you apart so that you would grow up. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Paul says here that we are to share the truth in love. Every week, the Lord will give me a message that I'm supposed to speak to you. And sometimes those messages are hard. Sometimes they're heavy. Sometimes they're light. Sometimes they're more on the side of love. Sometimes they're more on the side of truth. But everything I share to you is, is I'm hoping and praying that, that I've done it in such a way that you know that I love you and I'm willing to tell you the truth. And how foolish would it be for us to gather here every week for me just to tickle your ears and make you feel good about yourself, but never really tell you the truth. Paul says that part of growing up is not only being willing to share the truth in love, but being able to receive the truth in love. As a body of believers, we are a family on mission together. We have been put together in a family from all different backgrounds. The cross has brought us all into this place of unity. Remember, one body, one faith, one baptism, that's what he was talking about. We're all in this together. And being a family sometimes requires us to speak the truth. To tell you that everything is okay when everything is not okay is not love. Imagine that we apply the same concept to our doctor. This whole idea that don't, don't tell me the truth because I, I don't want feelings to be hurt. I don't, I don't want to feel bad. I don't want to have to face this reality. So, so don't tell me the truth. Tell me what I want to hear. What if a doctor did that? You've got your yearly physical, you go to your doctor and you go through all the blood work and all the stuff and man, the doctor comes into your room and 
He's got the paperwork there, and he says, you are an Adonis of health. I mean, you are like, look, if you're going to live to be 100, and even when you die, they're going to have to beat your heart with a stick. You're so healthy. Because you just, you're just not going to, you're just so healthy. You're, you're the example of what health looks like. Man, you walk out of there, you're thinking about Krispy Kreme donuts at that point. But nonetheless, you have been told that everything is perfect. On the way to your car, you have this pain in your chest that starts running down your left arm. Couldn't be a heart attack. I mean, you're the Adonis of health. How could it be a heart attack? Well, you fall to your knees, you call 911, Amos comes and gets you, takes you to the ER, they do all the tests there. That doctor has a totally different report for you. That doctor says, you know what? You're one jelly donut away from the Grim Reaper. Your heart is so clogged up, your artery, we're going to have to crack your chest open, we're going to have to do bypass surgery. Wait a minute, the doctor just this morning told me that I was fine. Well, he wasn't honest with you if he did any test at all. So you call the doctor, hey, what's going on? I'm in the hospital. I'm facing open-heart surgery tomorrow. You said all my numbers were fine when, in fact, they're not. And the doctor says, well, yeah, I did see all of that. I, I saw that your cholesterol was 400, and I saw that your heart was really struggling. I knew all of that, but I didn't tell you that because I didn't want you to have a bad day. Well, thanks, doc. I've had a bad day. <laughs> well, let's imagine that your uh, auto mechanic takes the same approach. Take the car in for a checkup on the car. Car's perfect. Another 100,000 miles, you're good. Driving down the road, you hit the brakes, you don't have any brakes. It's because the brake line is leaking brake fluid. Hey, why did you not tell me about this? Well, I knew you had a lot to do today. I knew you had to go do all your Christmas shopping, and I, I knew that if I told you about this costly repair that the car was going to be with me all day, and I thought, well, surely you'd rather be shopping at Sam's than to be here. So I just told you what I thought you wanted to hear. Folks, let me tell you something. If we are only telling people what they want to hear, if we're only telling brothers and sisters in Christ what they want to hear, that's a sign of spiritual immaturity. If you get offended when somebody tells you, hey, you're going down a path here, it's broken. Hey, that, that alcohol is going to destroy you. Hey, that stuff you're watching on TV is going to destroy you. It's going to eat you from the inside out. If, if you get offended when someone tells that, that is also a sign of spiritual immaturity. Paul says that a family of Christ followers together, well... We are to speak the truth in love. So here's the question you need to ask yourself. Do I go along just to get along? I mean, think about it. This past week, you got, you got some more holidays coming up. I know you know this. Where your whole family's going to get together. <laughs> I can tell you right now, I'm guilty of this this week. Did I go along just to get along? Yes, I did on Thursday. Because there were some things being said around the family that was just absolutely eating me up on the inside because these people say they're Christ followers. And you know what I did? I didn't say a word. I could see him look in my mom's eye now. If I'd, have, if I'd have pulled the pin on that grenade and rolled it out, my mom would have looked at me with that same look that I can't get out of my head that says, why did you blow that up? Well, maybe I need to speak the truth in love because these people I'm standing around here with are believing lies and perpetuating lies in the name of Jesus Christ. Do we just go alone to get along? That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's saying that a mature group of people, a mature church, is willing to say the hard things. Willing to do the hard things. Willing to say to you what you don't really want to hear, but it's done out of love. You ever heard the statement, sweeping things under the rug? Well, that came from the 1900s. It was what maids would do when they would clean these mansions. They would, they would sweep dirt under the rug simply to keep from having to bend over and actually get the dirt up. It was just easier. Well, you know, if you keep sweeping the dirt under the rug, where that's going to take you eventually. You got a pretty dirty house. Same thing within the church. If we just keep getting along, going along to get along, if we don't say what needs to be said and we don't hold each other accountable, that's a sign of spiritual immaturity in the individual and the church as a whole. Final question you need to ask. Look at number 16, verse 16. He says, from the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body to grow so that it builds itself up in love. So a, a mature church, a mature church that has mature believers, 
They are going to be involved in ministry. They're not satisfied being a spectator. They are not going to be blown around by every wind of doctrine. There's going to be a unity of faith and a knowledge of Jesus that goes deep. They're going to be willing to speak the truth to one another in love. They're going to be willing to grow up in Christ. And we're going to be willing to do it together. And here's the last question. Do I prefer a solo faith? Did you know that the New Testament knows of no concept of alone Christianity where you do it by yourself? As a matter of fact, you can't even understand the New Testament church in, in the aspect of doing it by yourself. You, you can't, there is no concept of, of Christianity as a lone venture. There's no idea, no premise for it. Everything you see within the New Testament connected to spiritual growth, evangelism, discipleship, growing up in the Christ, worship both individually, guess what, is connected to corporately. Look at the beauty of this verse in verse 16. He says, the whole body joined and held together by every joint. Notice the intimacy there. Notice, notice the interconnectedness there. Notice the, the, the keeping up with one another so that we're all working together. Notice how that this is a, a, a body that is working properly and when one part is not doing what it was called to do, that the entire body suffers. Do you prefer a solo faith? I was doing a funeral some years ago. I don't know if you know this or not, but <laughs> pastors, when we do funerals and weddings, I don't know if you know this or not, but funerals and weddings often have the opportunities for us to get caught in awkward situations. Weddings, you know, there may be some secret war going on in the family. Guess who gets to be the mediator on wedding day? That would be me. Uh, when, when the family is fighting over the inheritance, guess where it shows up? At the funeral. So oftentimes, pastors end up being coaches and mediators at weddings and funerals. But then there are other times things happen that just really make things awkward. In this particular funeral, um, I, I didn't have the opportunity to help the family plan this funeral. It was out of town. And so I was, I was going to do the eulogy or the message part, and I didn't know anything else about the rest of the order of the service. Most of the time, we're involved with the family helping plan the service. But nonetheless, I go, and I'm sitting on stage. I've already spoken done my part, I'm sitting on the stage, and we're going into the final song. Now this gentleman who passed away, I knew him a little bit, didn't know him real well, didn't really know where he stood with Christ, but his death was a, was a tragic result of a long addiction. And at the end of the funeral, this last song, I didn't know what the song was going to be, it was just in the bulletin song, they were going to play it over the sound system. And I'm sitting there on the stage, and the music begins. I'm going, well, that's not a song I've ever heard before. If you're not getting place it, but I'd heard it before. Well, as the first verse was being sung, I realized what it was. It was Frank Sinatra, I Did It My Way. Now, can I just say off to the side here, talk about the worst, one of the worst songs you could possibly pick for your funeral it would be that one. I think that would be in the top five at least. Let me, let me read one of the verses to you. Quote, For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say all the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, the record shows I took the blows but I did it my way. What an awful testimony to have. But unfortunately, for many within the Christian church, that's exactly how they're living. I have my ticket to heaven, but I'm going to do it my way, on my terms. I'm not going to live on mission together with that church. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to share the gospel. That makes me uncomfortable. I'm not going to get in a small group and grow deep into God's word. I'm, I'm not going to pray except over meals and maybe once or twice a month at best. I'm going to do my faith my way because I've got my ticket to heaven. Don't ask anything else of me. When I breathe my last breath on this planet, 
I hope that when my friends and family gather at that time, I'm really only hoping for one thing. That my family, my kids, my wife, those that were closest to me can say this. When I thought about him, I thought about Jesus. When I saw him live his life out, he wasn't perfect. But when I saw him live his life, he just kind of reminded me of Jesus and the way he lived. Well, folks, that's what growing up in Christ looks like. And you'll, know, you'll never grow up if we're being blown by every wind of doctrine if we're a spectator rather than a participant, if we're always looking at everybody else and comparing, if we are just going along and never speaking the truth in love, and if we prefer a solo faith, then you will be a spiritual infant. And if it goes on long enough without conviction, the Bible speaks to that as well. No conviction in your life speaks to the reality that maybe you never came out of darkness to start with. Maybe you're not walking that path with Christ. You see, to be a child of God means you had to have been adopted. If you've never been adopted, then you're spiritually dead. But I think it's time, if you're in Christ, I think it's time for all of us, me included, to grow up. Father in heaven, your goodness and your grace is sufficient. Your word is perfect and it's true. And Father, I, I pray that through these questions and self-evaluation this morning, I pray that maybe one or two of them are sticking out in the minds of some of the folks here this morning. And Father, we're beginning to see that our spiritual maturity is not what we thought it was. But Father, your grace is sufficient and the beautiful thing about your kingdom is that we get do-overs. We get to start afresh. We're not anchored to our past. The past is gone. What we have is this moment. Right now, we're not even promised tomorrow. So Father, the beautiful thing of your grace is that right now in this place, we can start again. And Father, you'll pick up right where you left off. Because Father, you want us to grow up. And you gave us the greatest example in the world to model our lives after. One day we'll stand before you. One day we'll give an account for our entire life from the moment we were born again and the time we died. And Father, we want to be faithful. And we want to be mature. And we want to grow up. So Father, we beg for your help and your mercy in this great journey that you've placed us on. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park.